Romans chapter 1 and our Bibles tonight in light of our country's recent acknowledgement of the 15th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on 9-11, 2001. We've been exploring some biblical themes that can help us, I trust, think through uh, the significance of that national tragedy. The one truth we have noted, beginning in the book of Amos, is that God does judge nations for their sin. A second truth that we noted, however, is the caution against thinking that you can trace particular judgment back to particular sins. Particular disaster, I should say, back to particular sins. But even with that caution in mind, we saw last week in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13 that Jesus handled a couple of disasters in his day as a general call to repentance. The fact is, death and destruction are always connected to sin in one way or another, and we are full of sin that needs to be repented of. And when disaster happened, Jesus used it as a call to repentance. Now, we've turned to Romans chapter 1 this evening, because here we have a New Testament passage which tells us why and also tells us something of the how that God has judged entire groups of people. Why does God judge entire groups of people? How does God judge entire groups of people? Last week I mentioned the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, um, ministered in New England, of course, in the colonial era of our country and was mightily used of God to usher in the Great Awakening. One of the sermons that I mentioned last week was entitled, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. And Edward's text for that message was Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And in Edward's words, in chapter 1, and I'm quoting him, Paul sets forth the exceeding corruptions and horrid wickedness of the Gentiles. That's what we have, the second half of Romans chapter 1, is Paul setting forth exceeding corruptions and horrid wickedness of the Gentiles. Look with me at verse number 18 where he begins. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Ungodly, unrighteous men (coughs) hold in I mentioned to you before, maybe you already have a note in your margin, but um, they hold down is the word. Kata is connected to that. They they hold it down. They suppress um, openly declared known truth. They, They suppress that truth. Ungodly and unrighteous men suppress truth that they have known about God to live their unrighteous lives. And that rejection of truth begins in verse 19 with the witness of creation. Notice, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. God has taken the initiative to make himself known to every man. And he has done it to to the extent that, verse 20, even invisible things of God, from the creation of the world, can be clearly seen. 
being understood, that is, those invisible things about God are understood by the things that are made. And if you wonder, what is he talking about, invisible things of God? Well, it includes this, even his eternal power and Godhead. That is, from the creation, men can know (coughs) that something made us. (laughs) Something made all of this that pre-existed it all. (coughs) And the one who made all of this that pre-exists it all is greater than all of it. Eternality, power, and even this, Godhead. There is a personal entity that pre-existed, that brought this into existence and is greater than it all, that personal entity must be divine. His eternal power and Godhead is so revealed and God has so taken the initiative to make all of this known that all men are without excuse for suppressing what they know of God to live their unrighteous lives. Listen, basic intelligence when observing creation, arrives at the conclusion that someone greater than creation, someone existing before creation, and someone incredibly powerful brought all this into existence. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Normal intelligence, seeing creation, is able to conclude that. About a decade ago, Alustra Media, and I'm saying that in case you want to pursue it, Alestra Media produced a DVD entitled Unlocking the Mystery of Life, subtitled The Scientific Case for Intelligent Design. The presentation was the result of a number of professors, philosophers, scientists uh, from places like Cambridge University, Munich uh, University, University of California, Berkeley, um, University of Chicago, (coughs) various others. They had come together to evaluate the theory of evolution that originated with Darwin in in the mid-1800s. They all said that they had entered their fields of study assuming the theory of evolution, Just, just assuming it, because that's what everybody around them... It was the only assumption of mainstream educational institutions from elementary to grad school. It was then, it is now. So they entered... Their occupations, assuming that, they had begun to admit, though, that in light of the evidence, evolution was increasingly less intellectually satisfying. And the study of the most basic elements of life, such as the multitude of the cells in the human body, was bringing them to the conclusion that there was a purpose and plan to life that must be the product of an intelligent cause. These are Bible-believing people. But they're arriving at this. Their discussion of the molecular structure and even what they called the machinery within molecules. It it is fascinating. It's convincing. And And the video is well done. But I would say this. While the more you, more in depth you look into the molecules and the structure of the body and all that, while the more you look into it, the more it gives you cause to marvel. You don't need a microscope to know there is an eternal, all-powerful, created God. And I don't mean this to be trite or offensive. All you need is the brain that God's given you. And look, that's the argument that he's making. 
When you deny the messages of your God-given brain and submit to education that is intent on preaching out any thoughts of God, you set in, and by the way, atheistic, if you can call it that, humanistic evolution is preaching. And there are multiple pulpits in just the marketplace of ideas of our culture. And, and they are preaching their own message. And when you submit to education that is intent on preaching out the thoughts of God, you set in motion a, a chain of events that begins in verse 21. Notice, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Before Darwin penned uh, The Origin of Species in 1859, his knowledge and discourse of the Bible is well known. Uh, Back years ago, I read uh, The Religious Life of Charles Darwin. That was a shorter pamphlet, and I've read uh, more since then. But on one occasion, he, you can still read a letter that he wrote to his sisters, and he asked his sisters what their favorite book of the Bible was, and then he told them that his favorite book of the Bible, for him, the favorite book of the Bible was the Gospel of John. Uh, there's a, a massive biography that came out in 1994 that suggested that Darwin's own uh, views on evolution restri- reflected his struggle against the supernaturalism that he was taught as a child. Darwin testified that when he wrote The Origin of Species, he felt as if he was confessing a murder. He's attacking God, and he knew it. His soul was torn with what he was doing. And in his old age and in bitterness, he wrote an autobiography that he really intended to be read primarily by his children. But he spoke of growing tired of pleasures of life. And I'm going to quote some of this for you. Up until the age of 30, and I'm quoting his words here, the whole paragraph. Up until the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me good pleasure. And even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare. Formerly pictures and art gave me considerable pleasure, and music, too, was very great delight. But now for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I've tried to read a line of Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull it nauseates me. I have almost lost any taste for art or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collection of facts. But why this should have caused the atrophy of that part of the brain alone, that part that delights in things on which higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness. This is how this man finished his life. And yet, it's this man's work in theories that we have turned every government-run institution in our country over to. A man who professing to be wise by the time it was over said, I've completely lost all happiness. My mind is darkened. I have no taste for pleasure at all. 
And the kind of darkness that Darwin's suppression of truth brought into his own life is just the beginning. When men suppress the witness of creation, they replace the worship of God with the worship of creation itself. Look at verse 23. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. (coughs) Now, we do need to pause and, and make note of this. In pagan lands where missionaries take the gospel for the first time, find people steeped in worship of gods of wood and stone and sun and moon and stars and even special plants and all of that. Okay. As a boy growing up, I thought that that was probably some indication that people are sincerely worshiping God the best way they know how. They just don't really know who he is and they don't know how to go about it. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying that when they do that, it's not a sincere attempt to worship the true God. They are actually suppressing the witness of the true God and they're making an exchange. And those dynamics are not just present in and operative in so-called pagan lands. How has even Western culture arrived at the inalienable rights of animals? And even endangered mushrooms. Seminary in Washington State uh, was able to purchase um, through just an incredible grant and gifting, and then they were able to purchase some prime land. And it ended up that they were not able to build on that and had to sell it um, because on their property were endangered mushrooms. The inalienable right of animals and plants. Ernest Gollenbach wrote the Earth's Ten Commandments and uh, one of Berkeley's famous um, artists, uh, he enlisted to do a backdrop. But listen to this. Commandment number one was, Thou shalt love and honor the earth, for it blesses thy life and governs thy survival. Commandment number four, Thou shalt give thanks for thy food to the creatures and plants that nourish thee. I could go on with the rest of that, Earth Day and honoring Mother Earth and so on. When Al Gore ran against George Bush, we came very close to electing a president that believes that, all of it. And we now have had several administrations that have, at a minimum, yielded to powerful lobbyists that have promoted worshiping the earth the way it nourishes you. 
Now, what happens when God stops striving with men? I mean, whole cultures of men that are educating, their, they're educating, attempting to educate the knowledge of God out of their children. What, what happens when God stops striving with men that worship and serve the creature and the creation more than God? What happens when God allows man in his darkened mind to pursue his godless living? Well, look, at, look back to verse 24. I'm backing up to catch this. Wherefore, in light of what we've been seeing, in light of suppressing the knowledge of God that you can witness in creation, in light of making an exchange, in verse 24, wherefore, on account of that, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And when we allow all those phrases to come together, what it's saying is that God lets loose the restraint and just allows people to pursue moral impurity and to reap the consequences in their bodies that comes with it. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man committeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Let's loose. Go ahead and pursue it and face the penalty that comes with that. That is a reminder to us that when God commits to judging a culture, he can bring external forces in, but he could also just turn loose. Turn us loose to our own flesh because our flesh is so wicked and the sin that it brings is so destructive. He doesn't even have to bring external forces. He may, but he could just let go. And it's also a reminder to us that moral impurity is at once its own punishment but if unrepented of, it brings additional judgment. Because, notice verse 26, when people are let loose to pursue their flesh and all that goes with it, and they won't repent, verse 26, God, God now adds that to the whole picture. And for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was meat, which was fitting to the crime, if you will. What does God turn us loose to if, we will not repent, even in facing the destruction of, well, more self-destruction through moral impurity that is described here as unnatural. And there's more. Look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, look at that, that's where the battle starts. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. I don't want to think about what even creation witnesses to who God is. Don't want to even think about that. So because of that, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a reprobate what? 
might. Just unleashes it to the place that they will destroy, to the place you can't even think straight about anything. You can't think healthy. You can't think honorably. You can't think good anymore. And when you're not thinking straight, you do those things which are not convenient, not proper, and look at the list, being filled with, being filled with all unrighteousness, (coughs) fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. I get there and I think, again, it just that, that so stands out. And yet you think back to Old Testament, I mean, capital punishment for cursing your father or mother is the statement. And, and, and when the Old Testament says it, it says, whoso curseth his father or mother shall surely be put to death Wow, that's so extreme. What's the rationale for it? The next statement is, he hath cursed his father and mother. (laughs) Right in the middle of that, verse 31, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, which is the idea of heartless, unmerciful. And the inventory of those last few verses is bad enough. One of the young people this week in school was reading through Romans 1 preparing to try to memorize and just said pastor I don't like those verses (laughs) it's just distasteful to even think about but now notice verse 32 and I think you'll see it describes our whole entertainment system who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things all of that in the inventory ahead uh, above that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So, brethren, you think through this passage. Our educational system is given over to denying the witness of God in creation right where it starts, the top of the passage. Unrestrained sensuality is glorified in our music and every other form of mass entertainment. You won't go anywhere in public that you won't hear sensuality glorified in our music. And all forms of mass entertainment are glorifying sensuality. It's from ads to every other, every other bit of it what sells. It seems every significant voice, uh, if I go back to that concept of the marketplace of ideas, it seems like every significant voice in the marketplace of ideas is, is in a full court press to present what the scripture declares as against nature, as something that is not only acceptable but beautiful. That's true of the majority of educators, entertainers, athletes, politicians, and even clergy. I don't know if you've seen the announcements about these peace rallies in Whitewater. 
and uh, there are three of them. Two have already happened. There's one more next week, <coughs> and um, you could read about um, peace through unity is, was the theme of it. They shortened it up to peace rallies. And they talk about things that have gone on in Milwaukee, things that have gone on in Orlando, things that have gone on in Dallas and various places. And, and really is presented as, let's get our community together to talk. Let's promote good dialogue between citizens and our police. Let's, let's promote respect for our law enforcement. Let's promote respect for um, different colors of people and different ethnic backgrounds and so on. But I suspected from the first mention of it that this was not just about promoting good relationships with our police officers. I'm all for that. I saw that a a sheriff deputy's wife was going to be one of the speakers. Our police chief was one of the heads of it. But I also saw that the MC of the whole proceedings was um, a liberal woman pastor of a gospel-denying church. And I assume there was more to it. UW professors involved and so on. And I had occasion afterwards to read one of the newspaper accounts of it. There were nine speakers Five of them promoted homosexuality positively of one way or another. The leading promoter of it, and here's what happens. And I looked at the pictures, and I saw kids that have attended RVBS sitting there as part of the 250 people that are sitting there listening, these little kids. One of the speakers is the head of the Family Equality Council. And this lady, who's the head of the Family Equality Council, got up right off the bat to talk about her and her wife. And they're raising their daughters in our town. And about, you know, the cause. And over and over and over, the speakers who referred to it said, I have faced discrimination because of who I've chosen to love. Do you know what that's doing to little minds all around? This is something beautiful. They've chosen to love somebody. Why would people be negative about that? Our educational system is denying the witness of God in creation. As a matter of public policy, we're worshiping and serving the creature. Unrestrained sensuality is glorified in our music and every form of mass entertainment. Every voice in the marketplace of ideas is promoting what God says is unnatural against nature as the norm and as something beautiful. And lawmakers are wanting to criminalize even the mentioning of it, of the scripture's position. And in addition to that, brethren... Our minds are so messed up. Our minds are so messed up that we are killing our babies in their mother's womb at a rate of 1.2 million a year in this country. And it's been going on so long, it's just like, well, that's life. 
we are so heartless and our minds are so messed up that 1.2 million of our babies were murdering while they're in their mother's womb. And we could go on and on with evidence of suppression of God's truth, darkened minds, destructive lifestyles. What should we conclude as we consider a text like this and we apply it to our country? Well, let me say this, first of all, that we aren't done with the series, so I'm not trying to present these conclusions as all there is to say about 9-11, so let me just preface that. I'm giving these thoughts in connection to the text and our current state of affairs. But I I would say this by conclusion, first of all, is this. We are already in the midst of judgment, and we are ripe for much more. When you see a society that is pursuing sensuality in every shape and form, unrestrained, that society is one that God has already released, at least to some degree, to its own destruction. When you see a society that is is bold and unashamed, promoting what God says is unnatural, against nature, that has inherent in it destruction. And we're boldly promoting, we're already in judgment and we are ripe for much more when a society can have the blood of 1.2 million of its children on their hands and barely pause. That society is already in the midst of God's judgment, but is ripe for much more. That's one truth I think we can conclude from this text. But a second truth is this. The distinctives between Bible-believing people that are thinking God's thoughts and mainstream culture are large and profound. I'm going to say that again. The distinctives, or I could say the distinctiveness. The distinctiveness between people that believe the Bible and are thinking God's thoughts about all of this. Distinctiveness is large and profound. Don't be shocked when the distinctives are highlighted and when the values of God's people and our culture seem to be on a collision course. Don't be shocked about that. If you continue to be shocked about it, I think, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not needing to be insulting, but you need to get up to speed with where we are. Um, you should probably be more alarmed at what kind of Christian, at what kind of Christianity you're living, if there isn't ongoing tension. I'm serious about that. What kind of Christianity are you living? if you are not increasingly at odds with this kind of a culture that is described in Romans chapter 1. Now, there would be a couple of options of that. One one reason why we may not be experiencing tension is because we are far too conformed and accommodating. 
Another reason why we may not be sensing it is because we are far too isolated and not engaged in it. Jesus did not want us conformed to it, neither did he want, want us out of it. He prayed that we would be what? In this world while not being of it. That we'd be salt and light in the midst of it. A God-honoring life is going to be at repeated odds with the spirit of our age. The distinctives are large and profound. And a third conclusion that I want to suggest tonight is this. That we, as God's people, with his spirit inside of us, knowing what we know from the scripture, we ought to give ourselves to rescue as many people as we can before this ship goes all the way down. Listen, the national ship is sinking. Apart from an, another gracious awakening of God, and his hand is certainly not shortened, then it can't sink. I don't mean to imply that. But apart from a gracious awakening of God where he really shakes us, the, the national ship is sinking. And brethren, how can we not try to rescue as many as we can of those that are going down with it? Wisely, graciously, yet boldly proclaim the truth. How can we just sit back and watch the, our national ship destroy itself? And I'm not just talking about the nation for the sake of patriotism. <clears throat> I'm, I'm talking about our neighbors, our co-workers, our extended family. Do it. Proclaim the truth. Stand up. Do it for the honor of God, absolutely and, and preeminently. Do it for the good of those around you, even in this life. And brother, do it that way. Speak the truth in love. We have to speak to somebody who's in sin, don't speak in such a way that you're using the Bible to club them over the head, but tell them the truth, because if they continue to violate God's law, God's order, God's creation, they're destroying themselves. Do it for their good, even in this life, but do it for the good of their eternal soul. I knew what I was preaching, and I've been under the... Uh, aura of that, if you will. And when we got to prayer tonight, thinking about multiple other things, and my mind started to turn back to us preaching, when we got to prayer tonight, as I bowed there with these two teenage boys, I thought, we're going to war. That is, our prayer time is going to war. There is a battle for the glory of God. There is a battle for <clears throat> eternal souls. And God has given us armor, and he's told us to put it on because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. And we're to put all of that on in the context of war through prayer. And we're to watch earnestly and persevere in prayer for the battle, for the glory of God and the glory of God that would reach into the loss of our community, 
that are part of a national ship that is sinking to destruction. There ought to be a a sobriety, there ought to be an earnestness, there ought to be an intentionality as we look at what's taking place. We're already in judgment, and we are ripe for much more. And in that context, anybody that believes the Bible and is thinking God's thoughts is going to be repeatedly in tension with our culture because the distinctives are large and they are profound, and we will pay a price. But there is an eternal good if we will give ourselves to rescuing as many as we can by the power of God. I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. <coughs> and I, again, in this kind of setting, this text and kind of approach we're taking, I don't know exactly what it might be that the Lord would... Uh, burn your own heart about. It may just even really be sobering you up to uh, the fact that our our thinking is is not in keeping with this society. Don't be shocked when that's highlighted. But don't give way. Prepare. Count the cost. Stop accommodating. But when you hear it and you have a tendency to be frightened, don't run and isolate. Let God use you right in the middle of it. I don't know what it, what it may be. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We ask that you <coughs> would help, first of all, in the battle for our own minds. Help us to think your thoughts and to embrace your thoughts and to not suppress your truth as if it's inconvenient for the way we want to live our lives. Or help us to <coughs> yield to honor, to believe, to live out your truth for your honor and glory and for the good of those that are in the dark part of the shipwreck about to slide off into eternal damnation apart from you. Lord, we pray that you would you would be pleased to see fit to use us uh, to reach as many as possible. We don't know what that would involve. The places stands would have to be taken, the conversations that would need to be had. 
we ask that you grant wisdom, graciousness, love, and that also grant us boldness to proclaim truth. And we, our Lord, will greatly rejoice, if not in this life, in heaven, when we are able to see the way that you're using a church like ours, individuals, families, called out ones out of this culture, um, called out of our sin, called out of the dominion of this world, our flesh, and while being called out, nevertheless, still in, and in for the sake of a testimony, and in for the sake of a witness, Lord, we pray that you'd use us. Uh, as long as you tarry your coming, and give us life, use us, we pray, to reach Whitewater and the surrounding areas, and to continue to thrust out others into the harvest fields of this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.